Hi, this is Ruth Friedman, and I serve as the Maharad at Ohev Shalom, the National Synagogue in Washington, D.C. And welcome back to my weekly Parsha podcast, Life Imitates Torah. And this week, we look at Parsha B'Shalach, which tells the story of the actual final exodus from Egypt um, and what happens when Paro and his army chase after the Israelites. And we've been talking the past couple of weeks about the plagues. And we saw the breakdown of Paro as an autonomous agent going from hardening his own heart to having God do it for him. And then last week, we talked about the breakdown in, of Egyptian society, the way that the plagues methodically undo Egyptian civilization and the promise of an Egyptian future by destroying the crops, destroying the firstborn child of every family, etc. And it seems like in theory, that should have been enough because in chapter 12 of Exodus, after the killing of the firstborn, after Makapechoro, Paro says, okay, go, go now, take sheep, take everything, get out of here. And right after that, in the next pasuk, Egypt as a whole meets Raim, they say, go, 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 get out of here before we all die. So finally, we've gotten that sort of stamp of approval that the Israelites have been trying to work for, for all this time, of being able to go worship God in the desert and to do so with all of their property. They're actually fleeing with the support of Paro and Egypt. Um, we're going to talk a lot today about how there's no entity of the Mitzrim, of the Egyptians in this part of the story. There's just Mitzrayim, which is Egypt as a whole, which is used to refer to the Egyptians, but I think not coincidentally or not as an editing error, I think very intentionally. So now that everyone is encouraging the Israelites to leave, to get out of there, if this were a movie or a story, it could just end there, right? They finally have gotten what they want. Everyone is on the same page. But somewhat exhaustingly, it doesn't. Because with our Parsha, it opens that Paro changes his mind. Now, it's interesting to see how this happened, that Paro changes his mind. So in chapter 14, verse 5, we see, So it was told to the king of Egypt that the nation had fled. Maybe that the assumption is that they were going to be gone longer than just the three days. And the heart of Paro and his courtiers was changed about the people, about the Israelites. And they said, What have we done? That we've sent Israel away from our service, that we've released Israel. So they have a literal, a change, a literal change of heart. And they say, oh no, what have we done? And so they take 600 elite, elite chariots and all the other chariots in Egypt. And they run after the Israelites. Now, we're talking about Paro and Avadah, his court. That's not nearly enough people that you need in order to man hundreds and hundreds of chariots. So clearly they grab the entire army or maybe just civilian, who knows. But they grab a lot of people and they get on these chariots and they run. And we don't yet know how the Egyptians themselves feel. But in 15, something very interesting happens. In 15.5, God says to Moshe, stretch out your hand over the water and it will split and the Israelites will walk through the water. And then in verse 17, God says, I am going to stiffen the hearts of, here the translation is the Egyptians, but the heart of Egypt. 
and it will go in after them, meaning after the Israelites. And I will gain glory through Paro and all his warriors, his chariots and his horsemen. So this is interesting because what we see now is that maybe the actual Egyptians who are manning the chariots, they may not have been convinced of what they were doing. Paro and his his court, they, they, yeah, they were, right? They had a change of heart. But the people themselves, all the warriors, all the people on these, um, on the chariots, maybe they weren't convinced. Or maybe they were, but not to the point that they were going to ride their chariots into the middle of a sea that God has miraculously split and allowed the Israelites to walk through. They clearly are not yet totally convinced because God has to strengthen their hearts in order to convince them that they should actually go in. And so God does. And then we get the final time that Egypt speaks. At the morning watch, God looks down upon the Egyptian army from a pillar of fire and cloud, and he throws the Egyptian army into panic. Right? It's a, I, I've likened it in the past to like a stun grenade of what God does. God, God disorients them, which just causes a panic. And then... We see the next pasuk, a very important pasuk, Vayasar et Ofan Markevotav, Vina Hagehu Bichfudo, Bichfudut. Sorry, I need to enlarge in my font so I can see everything properly. So God locked the wheels of their chariots so that they moved forward with difficulty. And then what? Vayomer Mitzrayim Anusa Mipnei Israel. The Egyptians, or Egypt says, I will flee from Israel. For God is fighting for them against Egypt. Now, even translating this is difficult because, um, as Rashi points out, the, the grammar is a little bit weird. Because God is fighting for them in Egypt. Well, as Rashi points out, they're not in Egypt right now. And so Rashi says, well, maybe it means the Egyptians themselves. But I think precisely the whole point is that it is interchangeable. We're not even talking about individuals right now. We're talking about the very heart, literally, the essence, the mind of all of Egypt, of the Egyptian people, of the civilization, etc. And right now, something profound has happened. Until now in this story, Israel has been trying to run away from Egypt. They've been trying to get out of there. The entire battle has been about whether they can be allowed to leave. But now the last time that Egypt speaks... Not Paro and his court, but the last time Egypt speaks, they say, wait a minute, we've got to run away from Israel. Now, I think that that's a really profound shift, especially from the perspective of the Israelites. I think that a lot of what happens at the crossing of the sea and and the killing of the Egyptians, if not all of it, is really about the psychological impact it's going to have on the Israelites. They were clearly always going to be haunted by the memory of Egypt, as they so clearly are when they turn around before they cross the sea and they see Egypt coming behind them and they say, what, you didn't have enough graves that in Egypt that you had to take us out here to die? They're clearly terrified. They're in that slave mentality. They will never stop being afraid of Egypt. And now they get to witness Egypt being afraid of them, that they don't have to run away from Egypt. Egypt has to run away from the Israelites. Now, 
not only that, but they actually, of course, witnessed the Egyptians be, being killed, right? Being hurled into the sea. And I wanted, um, in order to really enhance this last point, to look at a debate between the Bechor Shor and the Chizkuni about the same verse that we just looked at. And what exactly happens when God messes up the wheels of their chariots and then the Egypt says, we need to run. So the Bechor Shor says what actually a lot of the Mepharshim that I looked at say, which is what happened? God tangled up the wheels of these chariots. And what it seems like, I think what, what they're trying to say happened is the wheels, they all got stuck in each other and you would try to steer the chariot in one direction and, but it would actually go in another direction. And so it's like the world's biggest traffic jam that all, they were all trying to navigate out of the, this dry land together, but it all kept smashing into each other, kept getting tingled up with each other and you're yelling, go, go this way, go this way. And that's this sense of them saying, we have to run that they're all trying to get out, but they can't figure out how to navigate the chariots. And that's where the Bechor Shor says what they were, they were doing. They were yelling, go, go. And that's what they say. That's what they're saying when they say we have to run. The Chizkuni says something very interesting. He agrees with the Bechor Shor and says that that's what happens at first. But then he says, when they said, Anusa, we have to run. Baragli, ve'aniach hamerkava. He says, no, we have to run away on foot. Leave the chariot behind. Now, this sounds subtle, but it's actually, I think, a profound difference. Because this is the last time Egypt speaks. And right after this, God brings the crashes the water down and hurls them back into the sea. Now think about it from the Israelites' perspective. According to the Bechor Shore, the Israelites see Egypt being destroyed as a bunch of sort of faceless, anonymous Egyptian warriors on chariots all being thrown in, all being destroyed together. It is an image of the Egyptian army being destroyed, but like sort of more in a symbolic way, contained in one unit. They literally drown in their chariots, sort of like we talked about Choshech last week, where they have, they're trapped in their own homes, right? They end up being trapped, being killed, being destroyed by the very symbol of the thing that they were so proud of that they had built. But according to the Chizkuni, they die as desperate, terrified people who have realized that they have to abandon their chariots and flee on foot. That's actually, it's a much, um, much harsher, a much more grotesque, and at the same time, a much more human image of desperate individuals just trying to run, to run in the middle of the desert with nowhere to go, Right, but to, to see that that the humanity that emerges and the fear and the terror that they're just trying to get away. Now, as I said, this is partially about how do we want to think of Egypt and the Egyptians as they get destroyed? Do is this symbolic that they get destroyed as an army, or is it symbolic that they get destroyed as a people? What did they find? What were their final thoughts? Their final moments? What were they realizing? But I actually think that it's more important to think of it from the Israelites' perspective. What was this experience like for them? We know it was an important experience and the, something that was that was uh, tragic and had this element of sadness for humanity because there's the there's that beautiful midrash that many of us may know already that at the time that the Egyptians were drowning, the angels wanted to sing a shirah, and God said to them my creations are drowning in the sea and you want to sing, right? God chastises them and says, what are you doing? Human beings are being destroyed. Now, the angels can't sing, but the Israelites can sing, as we see. 
because this is about their own therapy, their own healing from trauma. And how are they healing from trauma? What is the final vision that they get? Is it of a symbolic chariot and the soldiers on it being thrown into the sea, being drowned, being destroyed? Or do they get to see that next step of desperate individuals, the same individuals that abuse them in slavery, being destroyed? How powerful a moment was this for the Israelites? How much, how deep did we need to go into their psyche in order to give them the tools that they needed in order to heal from the trauma and the fear and the oppression of slavery? Now, I don't have one answer that I think is better from the other. I think both have their own places and both have their own significances. But I think it's important for us to realize that when people or a people is is suffering from trauma we or being wronged we can't just tell them oh just you know move on forget about it that we have to really validate that sometimes you need you need much more direct processing and also there is a place to to witness the destruction of your oppressor of your abuser um, and that that's an important component of the psychology of what we see here and what the Israelites needed to be able to even begin the process of accepting God's Torah, which we will see in next week's Parsha. Good Shabbos.